From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the show. Nice to be with you on this Monday morning and it is a terrific Monday morning looking out the windows there. Nice and blue outside so I hope you had a great weekend and uh, enjoyed it and uh, was nice and relaxed. Uh, it wasn't nice and blue. Uh, in terms of Cape Town this weekend because it was raining a little bit, uh, which was very nice to see. There were some people who were rejoicing at the fact that it was raining. Uh, there were some pastors who had predicted that it was going to rain, so that was all good. And the only reason why I'm really mentioning rain in Cape Town is in case you didn't notice, there is a drought going on. And everybody's talking about uh, what is going on in terms of Water and particularly Israeli solutions to water. People having a go at the BDS for preventing uh, Israeli solutions for water in Cape Town. And so it's a huge discussion. And we thought that given that it is a huge discussion, we better bring on someone who really knows their stuff. And so uh, outside I can see a white horse, uh, which has been parked outside of the studio, uh, because we have uh, Israeli water expert Dr. Clive Lipchin, who knows all about uh, Israeli water, who's come into the studio to chat to us. Clive, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thanks, Benji. Good morning. Great to be here. Nice to have you. Uh, if you do are a frequent listener to the show about a year ago, uh, you will have heard Clive on uh, the show before. So he is something of a regular guest, uh, but he's in studio now. So that is great. And don't tell, don't tell us that we don't keep you informed. This was a year ago we were having this water discussion, and now uh, it's a serious thing. So if you want to be part of the conversation, please, by all means, 34519, that's the SMS line. You could WhatsApp us on 0618951019, 061. 895-1019. Tweet us at HiFM or send us an email on air at HiFM.com. And we're very happy to take uh, your your calls, any questions, anything you want to know about water, about Israeli water, about South African water, anything you want to know about water. We are happy to take any of those questions. And uh, Clive is a real expert. Uh, we're going to get a bit into his details uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a smidgen, but he is... Uh, he's done water research for the IMF and the World Bank. He studied in the States. He's in Israel, so he he knows he he knows stuff hydrologically speaking. So it is uh, exciting to have him on the show, Clive. Uh, Great to have you once again. First of all, tell us uh, how did you get into the water business? Well, Benji, when I was uh, studying in the U.S., as you said, for my for my PhD, I was at the University of Michigan. Um, and I was thinking, you know, uh, it was all great to be in the U.S., but uh, my plans were always to go back to Israel. And so I began to think as I had to figure out, you know, what kind of research to get involved in, um, what is probably the most pressing environmental issue that Israel is facing in the world um, that I could develop expertise around and then could really create um, opportunities for me back in Israel. That really got me into thinking, well, you know, water is probably the most important issue. It's uh, the only resource that uh, all life on Earth depends on. And and uh, it's becoming a real uh, problem globally as uh, water scarcity becomes a reality for pretty much every place you can think of. Um, and at that point, I began to look into uh, how Israel, which is a desert country, a country with very little rainfall, um, with a fast-growing population, with, uh, of course, we all know geopolitical challenges. Um, I thought, oh, you know, surely uh, water is something that uh, Israel uh, has to take uh, seriously. So that's when I began to think about the water issue. This is already uh, uh, way back in the late 90s. Um, and that's when I began to think that this is 
probably the best uh, career path for me in the environmental world uh, is to think about how to um, develop my skills in uh, in water resources, um, and that's what I began to do. Um, and uh, you know, I graduated and uh, went back to Israel, and I've been working in the water sector um, ever since. It's fascinating you speak about Israel, but you were saying that uh, in Lake Michigan. Uh, it's actually a huge issue. Uh, water, you would think America could sort of sort its stuff out, but actually the state's rights and how America does its politics makes even water provision plays like America insane. Well, actually, uh, I sort of like cut my teeth, so to speak, on uh, on water policy in the U.S. because when you really think about water, and, and I do think it's, I suppose we'll get to it later, but, you know, the whole issue of the what's happening in Cape Town and in South Africa in general, Water, of course, is a hydrological issue in, in, in some respects, but uh, many times the way in which we think about water and we manage it is essentially a political issue. And the United States uh, has its own major, major challenges with respect to managing water. And it's sort of ironic when I was in Michigan, which is in the Great Lakes Basin, uh, 20% of the world's fresh water is in the Great Lakes. And even there, with all of that water, um, there are huge issues, huge controversies on how to manage water and how to allocate it between different interests and states and, of course, between the United States and Canada. And uh, actually, that was where I began to get my first areas of expertise and uh, um, in in. in Understanding that at the end of the day, and really why I so enjoy what I do to, to some respects is that thinking about developing sustainable practices to water in essence uh, has a very, very uh, specific uh, area with respect to um, how do you understand the politics, local politics, regional politics, special interests. And that plays out pretty much across the world, obviously in different contexts, but um, it's one way to think about water. Water is a political issue. And you don't get uh, bigger, more exciting political issues than if you go to Israel. Uh, they have plenty of them there and has already impacted on some of the, the political issues, particularly to do with Syria because of, of the Jordan and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but maybe for people who aren't aware, give us a sense about what is the, the basis of Israel's water regime. Where does Israel get most of its water from and why is it such a big issue? Well, the way to think about it or to begin to think about it is firstly, um, Israel being, of, as, as I think most people are aware, a very, very small uh, uh, country, all of its main water resources, and this again brings in the political dimension, um, originate beyond her, her borders. So water allocation and distribution is essentially a political issue whereby Israel has to think about how to manage its water resources vis-a-vis the, the needs um, uh, uh, from, the, from where the water originates, which is, which is in different countries. So firstly, if you think about the, the primary source of water that I think most people would be most familiar with, of course, is the Jordan River, the Dead Sea Basin, the, the Kinneret. All of this is part of what we generally term the Jordan River and Dead Sea Basin. But that that water, uh, in essence, uh, traverses uh, five political entities. So it begins in the north. Uh, you mentioned Syria, but also Lebanon um, has some uh, connection to uh, to the to the sources of water that flow into the Jordan. So we have. Syria and Lebanon in the north, we have Israel, of course, we have Jordan, and uh, we have the West Bank, the, the, the area of the, of, the, of the Palestinian Authority. So that one water resource, which is a very, very important source of water for Israel, is also a source of water that is important for those other countries. And so essentially, uh, if one is to think about how to effectively manage this 
this uh, source of water, uh, it's how does Israel relate to the fact that uh, other countries around him also have claims and are also using that water? The other source of water uh, that Israel is heavily uh, dependent, dependent upon, actually more dependent on than the Jordan, is groundwater. And groundwater is also uh, shared, in this case, between primarily between Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank, what we call the mountain aquifer system, which is a very important source of water for both parties. And then we have a second aquifer system called the coastal aquifer, which lies along the Mediterranean Sea, which is basically um, an aquifer that also provides water to the, the Palestinians in, in, in Gaza. All right, I'm just going to cut you there. We're going to take a, a short break, uh, and then when we come back, I want to discuss more about how that affects uh, issues in the region. We're talking to Dr. Clive Lipchin. Uh, he is uh, he's actually from the Arava Environmental Center Institute uh, in, uh, in in Israel, and he's talking water today uh, on the New Blue Review. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. We're talking water with Dr. Clive Lipchin. He's from the Arava Environmental Institute uh, in, in Israel and he's the director of the uh, Transboundary Water Research uh, Department and uh, we're talking about water and water solutions and if you want to... Uh, uh, to ask any questions, uh, you can WhatsApp us 061-895-1019 or SMS us 34519 or email us at chaifem uh, or even, uh, no, that's Twitter if you can email us on onairchaifem.com. And if you really feel like it, just for the show, um, you can also send us a, uh, a, 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 a message in a bottle. Uh, so that, cause you know, it is water themed. After all, now Clive, you spoke a little bit before the break. Uh, around some of the natural water sources that Israel has and who they have to share with. What percentage of water does Israel get from these different sources? Well, you have to look at that in two ways. You have to look at that. How much water did Israel get from those sources prior to the onset of desalination? And mm-hmm. how much does it Israel, and how much is Israel dependent on that source? Post the so-called, let's say, era of desalination, which began in the early 2000s. So prior to desalination, uh, which began to be developed in the early 2000s, Israel was basically 100% dependent on those resources. And therefore, um, when there were in Israel uh, periods of drought, low rainfall, um, Israel was in a very, very... Tight spot. Tight, yeah. Dry you know, spot. <laughs> <laughs> to, some, to some degree. Um, because, of course, if there's no rainfall and those resources aren't being replenished, then um, the gap between or the deficit between supply and demand uh, grows. Which, if I can say, is basically why there is a water crisis in Cape Town when you are still dependent only on natural water. Um, you have limited uh, flexibility um, in uh, looking for uh, or accessing or exploiting alternatives. So uh, that was the situation actually in the mid-1990s. Uh, Israel was going through a very, very serious drought. Uh, sea of Galilee, the Kinneret was dropping. Water levels were dropping. Um, the groundwater, water tables were dropping. Um, and Israel was basically, in some respect, where, it, where Cape Town is today, literally looking at a potential situation of, uh, of uh, literally running out of um, water and because of that, because of the realization that it's simply today with the fact that um, droughts are becoming more 
problematic. They're becoming longer. They're becoming uh, more prolonged, uh, partly because of, of climate change. On the other hand, you've got growing water demand. Um, it simply is not possible uh, for developed economies and countries like Israel to only rely on natural water supply. And this is really when Israel understood that they had to think about alternative sources of water. And this is when uh, Israel began to uh, consider very seriously um, uh, putting online uh, desalination as a way to augment and increase uh, water, uh, which has literally allowed Israel um, to become less dependent on natural water resources because it can always now make up the difference by literally manufacturing um, good quality fresh water from the sea. And, and what percentage of that is now Israel's water source? Right. So back to the original question. So, uh, again, prior to desal, it was 100% dependent on natural water. Today, uh, uh, it's quite an amazing feat where the amount of fresh water, what we call potable water, being uh, uh, consumed in Israel is roughly 70 to 80% coming from desalination. 70 to 80%. Yes. So, you know, uh, most of the water that we drink and use for our basic uh, domestic needs is coming from uh, manufactured water from the sea. And then we make up the difference as we need to from the fresh fresh sources. I can tell you, for example, today in Israel, we are now in the fifth year of drought in the north, primarily. The Sea of Galilee is at one of its lowest levels in recorded history. But because we have... desalination facilities, uh, we are not in a situation of where Cape Town is in terms of having to deal with water rationing, for example. So, so, so does the water just get left in those aquifers or in the, in the Jordan or whatever? So the way in which water is now managed, because we are uh, producing more from the sea, is that we now look at the natural sources, the aquifers, the, 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 the Kinneret, um, as, as reservoirs, uh, allowing them in, actually, in actual fact to recover and to replenish um, and to use them only when necessary, um, sort of as a, as a reserve, as a, as a, as, as a back. But the desal, <coughs> oh, excuse me, the desalinization, the desalination uh, issue is is only one part of it. I mean, with a large part that you're very involved in is is once water gets into the system, is actually reusing it in an effective way so that you don't have to keep using fresh water for secondary uses. Uh, and that's a crucial part of the system as well. Yeah, I mean, the one way to think about it in general terms is if you are a water manager per se. You really have to think about how much water to produce, supply, and how much water to conserve and to manage efficiently, which is demand. So we talk about supply-side management for water, and we look at demand-side management. You really have to provide both uh, when you are thinking about a a comprehensive water management uh, strategy. So you can think about the desal as being the supply side of water management, but the demand side is where uh, you have to think about – Recycling, reclaiming water, reducing uh, consumption, and so on. So, we take a let's say a two-pronged approach to um, to managing water uh, in the country with respect to both the supply and the demand side approach. So, the supply side is diesel, as I said, and then the other side of it is reclamation of wastewater. Now, that's very important because. Uh, on a global level, the largest demand for water anywhere, of course, is in agriculture for food production. Uh, generally speaking, in any country, agriculture consumes anywhere from 70, even sometimes up to 90% of a country's water resources. So any savings in agriculture can elicit huge amounts of uh, of water that can then be 
reserved for future uses, could be used to replenish environmental resources, could be used for uh, other sources, and so on and so forth. So what Israel does is that uh, we understand, the, the, of course, the importance of agriculture, and we understand that that can't uh, be sustained without water. But Israel, already way back in the 70s, began to ask itself, you know, do you really have to use fresh water to grow food? You know, people just never really thought of that. You know, many instances, uh, it's not necessary to have water that you need to drink to actually grow the food that you eat. And that's when Israel began to understand that so long as you can recycle sewage, wastewater to a high level of water quality, not to the level of fresh water, but to a quality that is sufficient and safe for the irrigation of food, you don't really need to use fresh water for agriculture. And that's when uh, the idea uh, of treating water but then reusing it for food production really began to develop. And today, um, more than 50% of the crops that we grow are irrigated actually with recycled sewage. And what this allows us, of course, is to basically massively save our natural water Sea of Galilee, groundwater, and so on, that now can, of course, be allocated to other sources, drinking, for example, or can simply be left, you know, where basically nature, uh, you know, intended it to be in the first place. Uh, you're talking to Clive Lipchin. Uh, he is a, a doctor of, of water out here from Israel to, to look at uh, the situation. Uh, 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 Clive, do, do people not go a little bit like you, you know? Uh, you, you're taking our toilet water and dumping it on 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 your nice shiny red apples. You know, there's a there's a there's a phrase that they use in the U.S. Uh, with this, this with this idea. They call it the the toilet to tap challenge. Um, because yeah, if you just asked anybody in the street to say, oh, you know, do you realize that that very nice you know crunchy apple that you're eating was irrigated with treated sewage? They would basically. You know, look at you and think, you know, what the hell are you talking about, right? Yeah. So there is a psychological element in, into how this, uh, this works. Now, it's interesting in Israel, um, you know, Israelis in general like to, uh, you know, uh, claim in some respects, you know, um, or, or, or strong supporters of innovation and so on. Um, and Israel has actually done a, a pretty good job of, uh, firstly, educating farmers. Uh, that this is a source of water that uh, is safe um, for uh, for for food production. But um, if you ask most Israeli consumers, you know your tomatoes and your lettuce and whatever is irrigated with treated sewage, or let's say let's use the word wastewater. Um, most Israelis are actually proud of the fact. They say, "Oh, you see, this is another example of how Israeli ingenuity has helped us to, to in essence, uh, you know, provide for uh, for not just a good water management, but you know, to ensure that we have a sustainable food supply." Um, ironically, as Israel began to literally replace fresh water with treated wastewater into agriculture, we also began to develop crops that can be irrigated with less water. So now, for example, we're not only um, replacing fresh with uh, with treated, but we're actually overall reducing the the, the need for uh, for large amounts of water in, in in agriculture. What we call, in essence, uh, more crop for less drop. Right, um, and okay, so so and that that means that. Uh um, that the that, that you can actually create plants that are, are are not just not taking all that much water in the first place. Yeah, because you see, the, 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 
you, you need to also understand that they're treating sewage, again, back to the sort of like toilet tap idea, which in essence is about the fact that how do you ensure that there's no to, to very little contamination in the water is, is not an easy thing to do. Um, it's very technologically sophisticated. It requires very effective uh, water quality monitoring and so on. But it also requires um, looking at how plants will uh, re- will respond to the fact that it's being irrigated, in essence, with a lower quality source of water. So I think one way you could look at how Israel achieved such a high level of success in wastewater reclamation was it wasn't just sending us a different quality of water to farmers. It was also at the same time doing a lot of um, R&D on uh, ensuring that the crops themselves were uh, sufficiently um, physiologically adapted to growing uh, on, uh, in essence, low-quality water. So a lot of research um, went in to uh, ensuring that the crops that were going to be irrigated with treated wastewater were going to respond uh, appropriately in terms of um, uh, growth, both uh, issues like uh, fr- uh, 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 fruit production, crop yields, all that kind of stuff. It's not a straightforward thing by by any means. Interesting. Uh, something of a, of, of a of a science getting uh, your toilet water to the farm. Uh, Clive, something else I'm, I'm interested in is you know we tend to look at Israel and look at sort of the big uh, technological issues, the de de cell, as you said uh, in in. In, in the beginning, uh, but one of the ones that I think is is fascinating as well is this aspect of how do you get water out to sort of the rural regions of of Israel in complicated places with the Bedouin, uh, with the Palestinians, because there's uh, you know there's a lot of fighting that goes on between the Israelis and the Palestinians over water, uh, but actually also a lot of uh, cooperation. It's something you've been very involved with uh, with your center. Um, could, could you tell us a, a bit about that as well, please? Yeah, I think. Um one of the one of the challenges, you know, so we talk about desalination and wastewater reclamation, all of that really works if you have uh, an effective infrastructure that not only, let's say, treats the water, but then, of course, the water has to get to the consumer. So we're talking here about things like distribution networks. I think in South Africa you, you use the word uh, reticulation systems. Um, and that means that communities uh, have to be able to access that, that water. So, again, in Israel, uh, roughly 90% of the population is what we would term on the grid. They're on the water grid. They're on the sewer grid, like, you know, use the same word for, you know, being on the electricity um, grid. So you need those water grids, that, that, that basic infrastructure to get the water where it needs to be used. Um, however, there are communities in Israel that are uh, not on the grid. Um, in this case, uh, one such community in the Negev is the Bedouin population. We have in the Bedouin uh, roughly 200,000 people, nearly 20% of the population of the Negev is, is Bedouin. And many of these communities being uh, poor, low-income communities um, lack access to the grid, what we would term uh, off-grid um, communities, and if you don't have access to the grid, you really can't um, benefit from uh, drinking water or having your sewage being effectively uh, disposed of and 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 uh, and treated. So these uh, off-grid communities um, are um, communities that we at the Arava Institute uh, have been working with uh, for many years now 
to think about the uh, solutions that can be uh, specific to their reality, not being being that they don't have access to the grid. So we have um, taken Israeli technologies for water treatment, but sort of have scaled them down so that they can provide that level of service to communities that don't have access to the grid. Um, On-site treatment, for example, household level uh, um, uh, sewage treatment or, or water treatment, and we do a lot of this work also with the with the Palestinians. If you look at uh, where the Palestinians are with respect to water management, uh, there's a huge difference in water management uh, vis-a-vis uh, where Israel is as, as, as a country. And many of the Palestinian communities lack access to these um, centralized infrastructures. So we have um, uh, and continue to, to work also in, uh, in the Palestinian uh, off-grid communities. Uh, we work very closely with Palestinian um, uh, organizations and, and, uh, and colleagues. And... Um, Really, I think that what this attests to is, yes, there's a conflict. There are many disagreements between Israelis and, and, and Palestinians and, and disagreements also in the issue of water allocation and so on. But on, the, on, a, on, a, on a community-to-community or, or a people-to-people approach, um, there actually is a lot of cooperation and there's a lot of pragmatism uh, with respect to saying, what can we do together to ensure that people basically have their basic water needs met? I mean, in essence... Uh, part of the, the challenge always with water, and this is a global challenge, is water is a basic human right. And so wherever you are and whatever your economic uh, position may, may, or may, may or may not be, um, it's essential to try to provide uh, the basic water needs that people need so that they can all have a respectful uh, quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a fasc- fascinating discussion. We're talking to Dr. Clive Lipchin. He's from the Aravai Environmental Institute in the in the Aravai. It's part of the Negev, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Aravai Institute is located actually, if, for those familiar with Israeli geography, in, in, in the far south of Israel. We're in the Aravai Desert, uh, maybe 40 or so kilometers north of Eilat. And to sort of put that into perspective, the Aravai region of Israel, which stretches from uh, Eilat, so from the uh, from the Red Sea all the way to the Dead Sea, literally all along the, the border with Jordan, uh, is one of the most arid places on earth. To put that into perspective, what does that mean? The Aravai region annually gets maybe 50 millimeters of rain per year, which means that rain basically contributes nothing to, to water availability in the, in, in the Aravai. However... Despite that, the Aravai region is one of the most agriculturally productive regions in Israel. So, you know, you can simply ask, well, how can that be if there's no water? Well, this is because the the very large farms uh, up and down the Aravai Valley uh, are using uh, uh, groundwater uh, that they've been able to uh, tap and uh, bring up to the surface uh, for the irrigation of uh, farms and, of course, are using treated wastewater in this case. All of the sewage coming from the city of Eilat is treated and then actually piped north to the farms uh, along the Aravai Valley as an additional source of irrigation water. Yeah, interesting. I see also that you have a, a bit of a partnership going with the, the, the JNF, uh, famous for their trees and some of their dams and whatever. So it's uh, quite interesting to see how the different organizations work together. Uh, we'll talk more about that uh, coming up. I also want to find out, uh, obviously we've got to find out about Cape Town and how we're going to solve that problem. Uh, and I also want to find out about uh, how the Dead Sea is dying and what we might be able to do to give it some CPR. Uh, so that's all coming up, so stay tuned. But we're, after, we're talking to Clive, Dr. Clive Lipchin, uh, but uh, we're going to take a quick break now. We'll be talking about water when we get back. 
The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi FM. That was Rita and Meshi with Koche Lach. Hope you're enjoying it here on 101.9 Chaifem. This is the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman and we're talking water with Dr. Clive Lipchin. Someone SMSing in saying bottled water has a different pH level uh, to normal water. What is the ideal pH level to buy? Clive, can you answer that? Well, firstly, I think that uh, actually... Um Bottled water most likely has the same pH as uh, water that you get from the tap. <coughs> it should basically be uh, be neutral. Um, so I think that uh, you know uh, if uh, if water if you're buying water from the store, um, normally I think if you look at the label, it'll it'll show you the the pH level that it needs to be. But it, it basically needs to be the same as uh, regular tap water. Mm-hmm. Clive, uh, I wanted to find uh, something else out of, uh, you know, as, as we're carrying on. Uh, you, you do a lot of this transboundary water research. As I said, you, you work with other groups like the JNF. But really, transboundary is all about uh, cooperating with other countries, with other communities. And, and that's what's informing a lot of your work around the, the Dead Sea, because the Dead Sea is actually dying at the moment. Yeah, I think that um, if you think about what, one of our most challenging environmental issues in Israel and the region is the fact that the Dead Sea um, is losing uh, roughly a meter of water a year. Um, very briefly, why is that happening? It's happening because um, there's no uh, natural flow of water entering the Dead Sea from the, the Jordan River. And that essentially is because the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret, um, is now basically a reservoir, meaning that there's no uh, natural flow of water from the lake down the, down to the river. And the consequence is that uh, without that water, the Dead Sea basically um, is losing uh, any of the water that it has. Left now, the Dead Sea um, is uh, is uh, is a is a basin um, that is shared um, with with Jordan. Jordan has the the eastern side, Israel on the west, but also, again, if you understand the geopolitics, um, the Palestinian Authority uh, is claiming access to parts of uh, the western shoreline because the Green Line, in essence. Um, uh, bisects that shoreline slightly north of uh, Kibbutz uh, Engedi. So it's a regional uh, uh, resource. It's transboundary. Uh, of course, it's a unique ecosystem in the world, and therefore there's great concern, uh, not only in Israel, uh, that, you know, how can we let this, uh, this, uh, this natural wonder uh, basically, you know, gradually disappear um, before our eyes. The only way uh, to resolve the issue of the Dead Sea is through uh, cooperation. Um, in actual fact, uh, there is a lot of cooperation uh, on this issue uh, at the highest levels of government between Israel and Jordan, and the Palestinians are also part of this uh, this regional cooperation to figure out um, how do we solve uh, this very, very, very critical environmental um, dilemma. Uh, and the the way in which uh, 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 the governments and and others uh, uh, we are very involved in this uh, is uh, if there's no longer water flowing into the Dead Sea via the Jordan River, where can we get the water um, to make up the difference? And this uh, has led us to uh, propose a regional project to actually bring water to the Dead Sea from the Red Sea near Elat. There's other proposals to do something similar from the Mediterranean. Um, this water would help replenish the Dead Sea, would stabilize the water levels. The other um, reason why these projects are being uh, uh, very seriously explored um, is because 
bringing that water from sea level to the Dead Sea means you actually have to drop it uh, something like 400 meters, which means actually you can create energy from that water. And why is that important? Because you use the energy to actually desalinate the water, creating even more fresh water, which would help to provide the needs for not only Israel, but Jordan, the Palestinians, and so on. So what's fascinating about this idea, the so-called Red Sea to Dead Sea idea or Mediterranean Sea to Dead Sea idea, it's about literally solving two problems in one. The declining Dead Sea on the one hand, an environmental dilemma, but also the fact uh, that we can literally produce uh, through cooperation more water that can meet the growing uh, needs for water, not only in Israel, but Jordan and for the Palestinians. Absolutely uh, fascinating stuff. There's a great T-shirt in Israel it's with like different fish and it's got the Red Sea and you've got a red fish and then it says Med Sea and there's a blue fish and then it says Dead Sea and there's just like a bunch of bones. So now you'll be able to wear a T-shirt like that uh, uh, without too much problems. We're talking to Clive Lipchin uh, about water today. We're going to take uh, a short break and we'll be talking about Cape Town when we come back. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Uh, this is 101.9 High FM, the new Blue Review with me, Benji Shulman, and we're talking water with Clive Lipchin. He's all the way from, from Israel chatting to us today. Now, Clive, you're out here for a very special reason. Uh, you're looking at the issue of Cape Town. Lots of stuff talking about in the news about Israel, about Cape Town. I mean, do you think that there's realistically something that Cape Townian can learn about the Israeli experience that can help? You know, I think maybe the first thing for Cape Townians is, <clears throat> is not to think that it's all gloom and doom. There's a way out of this <laughs> crisis. You know, Israel was in a similar situation, and uh, we resolved it. Uh, yes, it's a serious issue. Yes, uh, you know, living in Cape Town today is probably not a very uh, pleasant uh, reality with having to be limited to... Uh, anywhere from 25 to 50 liters a day. But I, I want to say to people living in Cape Town that uh, there are solutions, uh, there are ways to resolve this issue, and Israel is one place that you can look uh, to see how these issues can be resolved. Let's put, to put it into context again. The average annual rainfall in Cape Town, if I'm not mistaken, can be anywhere from 500 millimeters to sometimes up to 1,000 millimeters of rain per year. Israel, if it's lucky, gets anywhere from 300 to 400 millimeters of rain per year. And yet, you know, uh, it's, it's no water in, in Israel is important. It will remain important, but it's no longer a question of life or death. And if we can do it, Cape Town can do it. And of course, um, we are, we, I'm here and uh, all of Israel is, 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 <laughs> is with me. I think, you know, um, there are solutions we 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 have uh, 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 ways to offer um, and I think uh, it, it behooves everybody in Cape Town whether you are a resident or somebody involved in decision making to say you know what let's see what Israel has done is there anything that we could learn that we could adapt to our local reality um, and this could be again you know everybody talks about desalination but I also want to say there's many many things uh, Cape Town can do that Israel has done before you even get to desalination Firstly, think about the low-hanging fruit. For example, um, do Cape Townians know how much water they're losing in their pipes, what we call leakage? Uh, you know, the small little drops that, uh, you know, when, you're, when you don't close your tap properly to these huge, you know, water mains bursting. Do you have an actual uh, accurate sense of how much water is not getting uh, uh, to the consumers because the pipes are simply leaking? Well, uh, there are ways to resolve those issues. They are not uh, 
as expensive and as complicated uh, uh, to building new desalination facilities or new facilities uh, at all. So there's many, many, many ways in which this problem uh, can be resolved. And um, again, you know, uh, Israel was there. Uh, we, we know what it means to not have water and uh, we are no longer there. And uh, I, I am 100% confident that Cape Town is going to uh, uh, successfully uh, come out of this uh, crisis. Uh, now, we're just about out of time, uh, but you're actually going to be speaking at, uh, if people want to hear more, uh, at, at a big symposium. There's going to be other water experts and uh, people who know about this sort of thing at uh, the Great Park uh, Synagogue, half past 12 tomorrow, right, Clive? Yeah, thanks, Benji. Uh, it's going to be a great pleasure to be there. Um, I'm looking forward to meeting uh, some of the South African water experts and really having, um, you know, uh, an open uh, professional discussion on, on how we can uh, join forces uh, to tackle uh, this, uh, uh, this issue. And if people want to see the work of you and your institute, where can they go? So the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, uh, we have a very easy website. It's simply Arava, A-R-A-V-A dot org. You can go online. You can look at some of the work we're doing. Uh, we uh, have a lot of interesting research programs, but also we are an academic institute. Uh, students uh, looking for um, uh, uh, environmental programs um, can come and study with us. And so uh, if there are any young people uh, listening, um, I, I encourage you to look at the website. Uh, we have scholarships available. Um, it's a great way to experience Israel uh, from an environmental perspective. Right. Well, there you go. Uh, if you're a young person interested in doing that, I would definitely suggest it. Dr. Clive Lipton, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. And uh, good luck and uh, hope you have a good time in South Africa brings us to the end of the show uh, thank you very much for listening listen up next week we're going to be uh, heading it up with the president of Wheatso International so that should be fascinating uh, but in the meantime have a good week and have a short shower